You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 70 of the murder of my family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of 50-year-old Thomas Hager, who in March 2017 was gunned down alongside his friend in a confrontation with a schizophrenic man. We'll get into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners, so if you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurderofmyfamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Rebecca Miller and Jessica Wilson. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One more note before we get started. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Thomas Lee Hagar was born on August 6, 1966 in Oregon City, Oregon to Thomas and Sharon Hager. Thomas had an older sister, Cindy, and then he gained two more siblings, Timothy and Sandy. Thomas graduated from Lake Oswego High School in 1984 and started a family of his own. His first son, Michael, was born in 1983. Then in 1987, Thomas married Sherry Gibson. In 1988, Thomas would become a father again to a daughter, Christine. The family of four lived in Portland, Oregon, where Thomas worked at Lazy S Lumber. He ran the sawmill and built housing frames until 1995. That's when he got a job working for his family at Hager Four Manufacturing. Thomas continued working with his family for over 14 years. In 2001, he became a father once again to a son, Justin. 
It seemed like Thomas's life was going well. He was a man of many skills, and he had a passion for art and tattooing. But his main passion and skill was working on cars. Thomas was a mechanic at heart and had the knowledge to point out almost any kind of vehicle and tell you what the year, make, and model was, and what was under the hood. He was an easy person to talk to and the kind of person that wouldn't pass judgment. Thomas was known for his sense of humor and his perfect smile. But just like everyone else, Thomas wasn't perfect, and he battled addiction. At 10 a.m. on Tuesday, March 14, 2017, 50-year-old Thomas and his 40-year-old friend Dustin Childress were dropped off by two female acquaintances near the rural property on the 192,000 block of South Upper Highland Road in Beaver Creek, Oregon. The property, which was mostly wooded and had a few buildings on it, was owned by 36-year-old Robert John Highlands. Thomas and Dustin entered Highlands' property. Fifteen minutes later, Dustin called one of the women who had dropped them off and told her that he and Thomas were being shot at and that Thomas was wounded. The women didn't call 911. It wasn't until hours later that one of the women called Dustin's estranged wife, Samantha Childress, and finally alerted authorities. Police said they received a call at 5.45 p.m. to check on suspicious circumstances at Highland's property. It turns out that one of the women that dropped off Thomas and Dustin didn't call authorities right away because she had a warrant out for her arrest. After getting the call from Dustin that they were being shot at, the women did go back to the property and tried looking for the two men, but they couldn't find them. It wasn't until Clackamas County deputies arrived at the property at 6 p.m. and found the two men's bodies concealed near the property's front gate, about 40 feet from the road. Both Thomas and Dustin were dead. They had died from gunshot wounds. Investigators questioned the property owner, Robert John Hylams, and he immediately confessed to shooting and killing both men. Police arrested him on murder and unlawful use of weapon charges. A judge ordered Highlands held without bail until a court hearing on March 23, 2017. It was then decided that Highlands, who was a schizophrenic, would be held and examined to see if he was fit to stand trial. On April 16, 2019, Clackamas County Circuit Judge Catherine E. Weber determined Robert John Highlands was a danger to himself and to others in the community and the supervision and services necessary to restore the defendant's fitness to proceed were not available in the community. Judge Weber based her findings on Highland's mental health and on expert testimony from three psychiatrists. Highland's was officially diagnosed with having schizophrenia, and that he was unfit to stand trial due to his mental illness. A second doctor reached a similar conclusion regarding Robert Highland's schizophrenia diagnosis and his fitness to stand trial. But in February 2019, another health expert conducted a competency evaluation on Highlands. That expert decided that Highlands was fit enough to stand trial, but that he would need special accommodations at trial because of his level 1 autism spectrum disorder and other co-occurring psychiatric disorders. Robert Highlands was sent to the Oregon State Hospital in Salem, and he remains there until he's fit to stand trial. It remains to see when and if Highlands will go to trial. In a strange turn of events, Highland's brother, Byron, went missing in March 2020. On May 7th, his body was found stuffed into a refrigerator. Dental records were used to identify him. 
In June, police arrested Byron's ex-girlfriend, a woman named Jeanette Owen, and a Jefferson County grand jury indicted her with killing him. This story is tragic all the way around. The loss of Thomas Hager has left a void that can't be filled in his family's lives. Thomas's sister Cindy joined me to discuss the life and death of her brother and their struggle to pick up the pieces following his murder. That conversation is coming up in a moment. Is there something that interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there's been times when I wanted to go out and do something, but didn't make it because things I had on my mind kept me from doing what I wanted to do. If you find yourself in a similar situation, then BetterHelp Online Counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. And you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. And BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from depression, stress, and anxiety, to family conflicts, sleep issues, and more. Anything you share is confidential. And while BetterHelp is not a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. Hi, Cindy, and thanks for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your brother Thomas's case with us. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, your, your brother's case is really a sad and tragic one. There's some extenuating circumstances that have kind of put things on hold as far as whether you can get justice, I think, for him or not. But uh, And we'll definitely get into that. But before we do, can you tell us a little bit about your brother and what kind of person he was? Tom, uh, Tom was good. He was very good-hearted, very willing to help anybody, very giving. If he had it, he would give it to you. Um, he cared for everybody that was in his life and not just, you know, hey, how are you, kind of. He took everybody in. He took people in that didn't have places to live, um, friends that were down on their luck. He'd give them their, his couch. Um, things like that. He loved his children, um, was involved as much as he could be. Um, the very first, probably good part of his life, the last five years were a little rough for him as far as not having such a great lifestyle and, and being involved with drugs and some relationships that weren't very healthy. But overall, he he was a good guy. He met well in everything that he did. Mention some of that. It, it sounds like maybe he, uh, at times, went down the wrong path, um, but was trying to, to find his way back to keeping himself straight. He did. He got into a little bit harder drugs later. Um, 
in I would say the last five, six years, which kind of alienated some family members. Um, he didn't feel like anybody cared, but yet he uh, was apparently sober for the last three months before um, all this happened. So I think he was trying to get back his life when this event took place. Yeah, I know. I, know he, I read that he had been in the construction industry for years and had um, uh, tried to work steadily. Um, he had kids of his own. Um, but in, in March of 2017, that's when, you know, tragedy struck and he was killed alongside his friend, Dustin, uh, in Beaver Creek, Oregon. And just for listeners, that's a small town, I guess a half hour from Portland. Um, and, and both Thomas and Dustin were killed by a man named Robert Highlands after they entered onto his property. Can you sort of explain what happened and how that interaction between uh, the the three of them occurred? So from my understanding is that Tom and Dustin were dropped off at the entrance of this property on um, Beaver Creek or Upper Highland Road. And the reason that they were dropped off is because my brother's truck, from what I understand, um, wasn't registered the tags had expired and so he didn't want it towed or somebody taking the truck because they thought it was abandoned so his girlfriend and her friend dropped both of them off from what i understand is that they were researching abandoned properties and that this property um, had a few outbuildings that were overgrown on some cars, things that they were interested in, they went to go take a look at. Um, my brother had a machete to cut down the blackberries and a come along, um, which is a wrench to move like cars, things like that. So my understanding is that Tom was walking down this quarter long mile driveway and Dustin was behind him a little ways. So they weren't like together. And Robert Highlands was, he lived on the property in a, basically a condemned house. The house had holes in the roofs. He lived in his bathroom, played video games, um, very kind of recluse kind of guy. Uh, anyway, he went out to go check his mailbox, which is down at the end of that property in the driveway when he saw Tom and Dustin. So he kind of tracked them in the bushes and was hiding from him. And he came out and confronted my brother and asked him who he was, why he was there, what he was doing. My brother apparently refused to tell him who he was. Um, I'm sure there's words that were exchanged, which they were both heated. Um, And so Highlands decided to shoot him. He shot him once, and I'm guessing from what the coroner said, in the leg. Then he was shot two more times, and Tom took off running back down the end of the driveway where Dustin had heard the shots, saw that Tom had gotten shot. He made a phone call, told the girls that Tom had been shot and to come get them. So... um as Tom was running, I don't know all the details. I know that he probably fell 
he was shot at least nine times. And then Dustin was shot um, either in the back of the head or the neck. What I was told was the head. Um, It's kind of graphic. So um, he took Dustin's belt and tried to choke my brother, which my brother was already gone. And then he stood on Dustin's chest and tried to make him stop breathing. And that was pretty much the end of my brother and Dustin's life. Um, the girls got in a car with one of, well, one of the girls got in a car with another guy that was up at the house and drove down to see if they could listen for Tom or find Tom and Dustin. And they couldn't. But Highlands was casing the roadway um, back and forth to see if anybody was going to show up for them. She happened to pull over and said that she was lost, that she was trying to um, find a way to get to Oregon City because she had an appointment. And they, the whole time she was there, she was trying to ask him, you know, these questions and be aware of what's going on to see if she could see anything. And this you was, know he made this weird. Just to interrupt this. This was the, uh, the the friend that they had called that was there, really looking for them. Right. Okay. And he made a weird comment that this must have been fate that brought you here, and that kind of freaked her out. So she goes, "Well, I'm really late. Can you show me which way to go?" And so he pointed her towards Oregon City, and she left. the The, the sad thing is, is that the girls waited until almost 5.30 that night. And this happened at 10.15, 10.30 that morning before they called the police. And they didn't call the police. They called Dustin's ex-wife. And she called the police. So that's kind of how the police got out there. Um, Highlands had covered up their bodies right next to the road with like sheetrock and branches and things. And when the police searched the property, they couldn't find him. And so as the last police officer was pulling out, he went to go shut the gate and saw Dustin um, under the debris. And so that's when the whole thing kind of opened up and they took Highlands in and questioned him. And he admitted to doing it. And and what he did to them isn't, it's not like it was just a case of self-defense or even that he was patrolling his own property and he came across them. He, as you mentioned, he shot them multiple times. He jumped up and down on Mm -hmm. Dustin's chest. He took a belt and tried to um, choke your brother, although he was probably already dead. This is like a really bad case of of overkill and just uh, um, a lot of crazy stuff that he did that he didn't even have to do. Right. And what I don't understand is if they were trespassing, you say, hey, man, you're trespassing. You got to get out of here. I'm sure Tom and Dustin would have turned around and left. But to confront them and to be that angry, and even if you shot him once, why not call 911, say they were trespassing? I shot one of them and call the police. Why do you have to be so angry that you just, I mean, kill them like what you did. I mean, it's multiple, nine shots. You don't need to shoot somebody nine times. And, 
had they ever had any interactions with him before or any run-ins with him before? As, as far as I know, they didn't. But the other family believes that they knew him or they knew somebody that knew him. Um, but I honestly don't know if they ever did or not. And and you mentioned that when police got him, he pretty much admitted right away what he did. Was he fully cooperative? Do you know? Did he admit to everything and just, you know, walk them through the entire uh, attack? Yep. They videoed his confession. He walked them step-by-step on what happened. Um, it took him probably a couple of hours to that for them to figure out that they had the killer in their possession because at first they thought it was his brother. Um, but when he finally admitted to it, they got his confession on video. They have it written down. Um, and he, he didn't have a problem saying that he did it. Wow. At, at what point did it come to light that he may have had some kind of mental illness uh, going on? The only time, well, of course, his defense attorneys um, felt that he had some mental health issues as they thought at first he was schizophrenic. And we went through quite a few evaluations. Uh, The Oregon State Hospital has determined that he's just autistic um, and it's a low level autism. It's not um, severe. So at this point, um, he's just uh, autistic. And he is he currently, um, or let me back up a little bit. Did he have that you know of any kind of violent past or criminal past at all? No, he didn't. He uh, he graduated with honors from high school. He was in the Navy, got high honors in the Navy, um, was honorably discharged didn't show any, he has no criminal history um, besides this. That's, it's it's scary that someone can just snap like that and uh, two lives are are gone just, just like that. Um, Right. Just to back up for, for a minute after uh, the police go there, they, they find out that this man has killed uh, two people, and then they identify uh, the two people that are killed. One of them's your brother. How did your family get the news about it, and and how did you react to it? So it was pretty much through social media that I found out. My sister had saw a news article on Facebook of two men that were shot in Beaver Creek. And my sister called me and said, do you know where Tom is? And I said, no, I haven't heard from him. I'm not sure. I'll call dad and find out if dad knows where he is. Well, I called dad and my dad didn't know. And some weird by chance, I got this phone number of a news reporter that I called. And they were a little upset that I called them. I'm not sure why. But... um he gave me the number to the Clackamas County Sheriff's office. I called them. They said that they didn't know if it was him or not. Um, but they did tell me that it was, um, his friend Dustin had been shot. 
but they didn't hadn't identified the other body yet. And so we didn't know until the next day that it was Tom, which we kind of knew already. I mean, how do you not know? But um, they didn't call us. They called my dad, and then my dad called me, and I was at work. And you kind of have to hold it together while you're at work. And um, things just went into autopilot for me. I just had to be the one to carry everything and get people through the process of what was happening. Um, my son was also there and was there to help me be strong, I guess. So you were all up to, to deal with this uh, horrible aftermath. And, and meanwhile, he's uh, in jail and he's already got lawyers talking about a possible defense due to mental illness. Correct. Yeah. And and this this isn't a mystery. You knew early on who did this um and then they arrested him but the, there's not a quick uh rush to a trial. It sort of got sidetracked with this um mental hospital evaluation. What is the status right. of that and uh what's going on with that that's causing any kind of uh trial to to happen? So what happened is because of his refusal to aid in his own defense and because they say he's autistic, he has, the court ordered him to go to the Oregon State Hospital to be restored so that he can aid in his own defense. So basically that means he gets to go through um, learning how to be social in society, learning how to communicate with other people around him, um, basically getting him to a level where he's able to uh, aid in his own defense. He personally to me is capable of that, but he's wanting his attorneys to make the decisions for him and not make those decisions. So it's easier for him saying, well, they just made the decisions for me and his attorneys and the court is, are not allowing that. <clears throat> so that's why he has to be restored and it can take up to three years for that to happen. So we have status hearings and evaluations that come um, every four to six months and they can only do that up to three years. Once the three-year mark hits, then they have to decide whether he's going to go to jail, that he's going to get let off, or he's going to plead to a guilty plea. And there is a possibility that he could walk away. So all of this delay and, and stuff and not knowing what's going to happen is, I, I imagine, really causing pain for your family because you're not getting any kind of peace or not that there's a such thing as closure when you lose someone like this, but any kind of, uh, fin you know, final outcome, it's sort of delayed for you all because of this. It is. It's, it's hard on his kids. It's hard on his daughter. Um, I, I mean, it's hard on my parents too. It, it everybody that's involved is just seems like it's taking just so long that people are trying to move on. 
and go forward. Um, and I totally understand why they have to do that. I try to choose. Sometimes I feel like I'm just stuck because I want to see this through so bad and I want this to be over in some kind of justice for what happened to these two people. They had families, they had children, they had lives, whether it was a good life or not, it was theirs. It wasn't for somebody else to take away. And, and does, do you feel that it, it comes down to, again, I'm not, I'm not a mental uh, evaluator, but in your opinion, does it come down to hit this guy knowing the difference between right and wrong and him knowing that what he did was wrong in your eyes? No, because he knows it was wrong and he knows what he did. So it's not a matter of him figuring out. He knows and he says he knows. So I don't think, I don't think that's it. I just think he just doesn't want to make that decision to put himself in jail. He doesn't want to lose his property. He doesn't want to lose the things that he has. But in reality, he already has. Yeah, and it's um, just a, a really tragic situation, again, for your family to sit around waiting for this to 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 run its course. Um, and you mentioned one of the, the possible outcomes is that he just walks away. You said that, correct? Yep, that's what the district attorney said. I'm just putting my faith in the district attorney that that's not going to happen and the judge that that's not going to happen. But if we get to the three-year mark and because of COVID and not having resources to the Oregon State Hospital, such as counselors and therapies and one-on-one because of the contact issue, it could put this out to the point where it is three years and then we're fighting to get them to make a decision. Yeah. And the, the thought of him ever just being out there, uh, again, to do this to someone else, uh, is, is, is mind boggling that that's a possibility. Um, right. someone dangerous could be living out there among you like that. It's a scary thought. How, how much time is left now in the, in the process, uh, to, to that final, uh, timeline so it's been a year not quite a year and a half that he's been at the oregon state hospital so So we have another year and a half left so this is uh depending on what happens between this is a halfway point until something has got to give it sounds like it is yeah just a just a very sad and tragic case. Your your family and and Dustin's family have lost a loved one. Um, uh, do you uh, again? And this is a, a weird thing. We're we're talking about somebody that uh, if they're autistic, does that count as mental illness? I don't know. I'm not a a mental illness uh, expert by any stretch, and I don't want to offend anyone. Uh, by saying that, I don't, uh, and somebody can come forward and talk about the differences, but um, do you feel that he um, should be held fully accountable and uh, um, face the full uh, justice as opposed to any kind of hospitalization? 
Personally, I think that he should be. I've watched him enough. I've been in that courtroom enough. I've witnessed his behavior. Um, it's to me and in his history, I don't feel that because he's autistic, he didn't know what he was doing. And there's people that are autistic every day that don't do the things that he did. Um, I think that he just got angry. I think that it just got out of hand for him and he couldn't control his anger. And that's why he did what he did. If he can function and go to the grocery store and buy his medication and live in a house and take care of multiple properties and business that his father left him, I, I don't see that being autistic is an excuse or mental health for this particular person as being an excuse. Uh, and uh, not to dwell on him too much because this is really more about your brother. Um, what do you want your brother's uh, legacy or his memory to be uh, in, in at the end of the day? I want him to be known for his artwork for his mechanic ability. He could look at a car and know exactly what was wrong with it. He would restore cars. He um, had a very artistic part of him that did beautiful work. He did tattoos. He, he just had that ability um, and that ability to, to be a person that people were drawn to. And I think that his children and his granddaughter are probably the best part of him and the love that he had for them just really shown. He didn't even know he was going to be a grandpa. She found out that she was pregnant um, when this happened. So he would have been a great, great grandpa, but unfortunately he didn't even know he was going to be one. Um, And that's hard. But he, he would tell you he loved you every time he saw you and he was leaving. He just made sure you knew how he felt about you and how much he cared. And, you know, you missed that smile and you missed that love ya and... I want people to know that part of him. It's that's the unfortunate part is even if you get uh, an outcome in court or get justice, that doesn't replace Tom. It doesn't bring him back. Um, so you're 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 left with just the memories you have of him. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on to share Tom's story with us. I can tell it's still very raw for you, and, and you can still uh, feel those emotions that that you probably felt early on. And I wish you well moving forward, and I hope that your family finds some kind of peace after this is all behind you, and hopefully uh, there's justice for Tom that he deserves. I hope so, too. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview of a true crime podcast I think you'll really enjoy. It's called A Date with Dateline. Be sure to give it a listen. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family. But before you go, remember, 
that every murder victim means something to somebody. Diabolical. Vengeance. Betrayal. Bad hair. Leaning. Hi everyone, this is Kimberly. And this is Katie. And we have a weekly podcast called A Date with Dateline, a recap of Dateline episodes. We talk about important issues like grainy surveillance footage, cell phone towers, Andrea Canning's white jeans, and Mankey's hankies. We delve into the details of any victim who's ever loved life or lit up a room. So find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and iTunes to make A Date with Dateline. And remember, don't watch alone. A Date with Dateline is a podcast hosted by two professional amateur true crime TV experts with no formal training but evidence lockers filled with snark and uninformed opinions.